On Sunday night, the 23rd of June, four weeks ago today, we had a sort of a praise night here, a night that we just made room for God, really. We, did, we came with no agenda other than to worship Him and to lift Him up and to invite the Holy Spirit to move and to speak. Um, and it was really powerful. Those of you that were here will no doubt remember that. It was an incredibly powerful night. Um, there was a guy came along who I hadn't actually invited. It sounds bad, but you know, I got a text message in the afternoon from Neil, and Neil said, I'm coming tonight. Is it okay if I bring this guy, Matt, with me? And I said, I work away, and I hadn't a clue who Matt was. I uh, just knew he was from South Africa, and he was over for a while, and... and Matt came and he said to me, he came over to me after about half an hour and he says, do you mind if I share a few things? And I said, work away, buddy. And he shared a lot. <laughs> and he really spoke, I believe, timely words over this church and over this people. And he went round and prayed for everyone individually. And it was actually incredible. That is not an exaggeration. It was a very, very powerful night. And I've been... I recorded some of what he said because I always forget these things. You know, in the moment I sit down and I think, oh, this is, this is so good and I'm loving this. And, and then I go home and literally an hour later, I sit with a pen and a bit of paper and I'm like, I can't remember half of what. So I had recorded some of it on my phone and Linda and I sat at home that night and talked through it and, and sort of like brainstormed all the things we could remember and wrote them down. And then when I was away last week in Wales, I sat one or two evenings and, I, and I, I listened to what I had recorded and literally just, just wrote it out word for word, pen and paper, because I believe it was so timely and so accurate. So I've been thinking about that a lot lately and it's one of those things I don't want to just move on from, say, oh, wasn't that a nice night? And weren't all those nice things that were said? I want to actually really process it. Um, and he, he mentioned two portions of scripture in particular. He mentioned Luke 5, the first bit of Luke 5, where, where Jesus is on the boat with Peter and tells him to put the nets down on the other side. And he, he explained that on that occasion himself and went into a bit of detail on that passage. But another passage that he, that he referenced was Isaiah 43. And I've been thinking about that just this last day or two myself, thinking, okay, God, what, what is there in this um, to be teased out? And uh, this, is, this is where I want to go this morning. I'm going to start at verse 14 and read to verse 20, 21. But focus on a few verses in the middle. That'll be quite familiar probably to, to a lot of you. This is what the Lord says. Your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake, I will send to Babylon. So Isaiah is writing and God is speaking to a people who are captive in Babylon. They are, they've been taken away from Jerusalem. They're in captivity in a foreign land. And this, is, this message is coming to them. For your sake, I will send to Babylon and bring down as fugitives all the Babylonians in the ships in which they took pride. I am the Lord, your Holy One, Israel's creator, your King, this is what the Lord says, he who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there never to rise again, extinguished 
snuffed out like a wick. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the desert and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. And it's particularly verses 18 and 19. Let me read them again. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. Lord, thank you that you, by your spirit and through your servant, brought these verses to our attention. And I pray, God, you would give us deeper understanding of them this morning and what it is that you would want us to hear and obey from them. In Jesus' name, amen. So these are familiar verses. If you've been around churches for a while, you will hear these verses kicked around a lot. God is doing a new thing. And it always seems like God's doing a new thing. So, so what, what does it mean? I want to look at three things in particular. I'll give you a, a title. Um, or Well, not really a title. It's just a list of three things, to be honest. Um, it's vision, flexibility, and forgetfulness. That's snappy, isn't it? Vision, flexibility, and forgetfulness. First of all, in verse 19, there is an invitation to see or to look. He says, see, I am doing a new thing. That word see, that's a command. In the older versions, it might say behold, or it might say look, but it is a command. It's not just a throwaway word. He's saying, I want you to actually open your eyes and look at something. To see, I am doing a new thing. It springs up. And then he asks the question in verse 19, do you not perceive it? In other words, God is saying, I'm doing something. Can you see it? Can you see it? So the first thing that I want to just draw out is vision. What do you see? This is a question. What do you see? For this prophet Isaiah, looking with faith, the new thing is bursting forth before his eyes and he's amazed that those who are listening to him can't see it. He's got the eyes of faith. That's the difference. And he is able to see what God is doing and what God wants to do. And those he is speaking to are having difficulty seeing it. And you can, just, you can, you can pick up a wee bit of frustration in verse 19. And you say, do you not see it? <laughs> do you not see it? What do you see? There's loads of times in the scripture where people are invited to look closely and to see something. There's a little story in 1 Kings 18. Well, it's a big story, I suppose, of, of Elijah after he has won the victory on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. And he tells Ahab, the evil king, he says, There's rain coming. Hadn't rained for three and a half years. And he says, There's rain coming. There's no clouds in the sky. There's no sign of rain. But he says there's rain coming. And he goes with his servant and Elijah begins to pray. And he sends his servant to look out to the horizon over the sea. And to come back and tell him if he sees anything. And the servant goes and comes back and says, don't see anything. 
And Elijah says, go and look again. And he goes and looks again and comes back and doesn't see anything. Seven times Elijah sends this guy to look. And the seventh time he comes back and he says, I see a cloud the size of a man's hand. So was it small or was it far away? I see a cloud the size of a man's hand. And then Elijah goes on and says, you need to go and tell Ahab the rain is coming. He better move quicker. The rain's going to overtake him. But the fact was that this servant had to have his eyes open to see even a tiny cloud. And that was enough for the servant of God to then send the message to the king and says, there's going to be an abundance of rain. The skies are going to get dark. Do you see it? In 2 Kings, Elijah has a... Uh, sort of a disciple, Elisha, who has taken over from him. And Elisha is surrounded by an enemy army of the Arameans. And Elisha's servant is getting a bit jittery because he sees all these soldiers and chariots and all this stuff all around him and he's getting scared. And Elisha prays, open his eyes, Lord, that he may see. And then whenever the servant looks again beyond the army that is surrounding the city, he sees another army that he didn't see before. He sees chariots and horses of fire filling the hills all around because he's had his eyes of faith opened and he now sees what God sees and what the servant of God sees. What do you see? And by that I mean, what do you see God doing with your life, in your community, in your housing estate, in your development, in your circle of friends, in your family, in your town? What do you see in your workplace? What do you see? Linda sees a lot. (laughs) I'm sometimes sort of slightly bowled over by how much she sees. And how many visions and dreams God has given her. She got laser eye surgery about 10 years ago. And I think the Holy Spirit did something at the same time as well. Because she sees more than one person or one couple or even one church could achieve in a lifetime. But God could do it. What do you see? Do you have eyes of faith? What do you see when you look at the empty units around here? I see all sorts of things. I see a little hub of life and activity. A little heartbeat in the middle of the town. I can see that. In fact, what I can see... Do you know the way after... In in the years after the... The Twin Towers were, were put down on 9-11. And, and what the, the citizens of New York did was they put these two giant lights at the base where the two towers had been, just shining these two towers of light up into the sky. It's a really powerful image if you ever see it. That's what I see here. I see just light shooting up and a, and a, and a stronghold of light. Because there's so many strongholds of darkness. There are so many towers, dark towers that have been built over this town in the past. And I just see how this picture reminds us this shaft of light just stretching up into the sky with this as its foundation, this little complex. What do you see? When I'm driving around and I'm looking at signs on the road of little villages around here, Laurel Vale and Bestbrook and Points Pass and Guilford and Tully Lish. And when I look and I see those signs, I see new communities of faith 
I see people in houses with Bibles sitting around a table, maybe 10 of them, breaking bread together, opening the Word together, seeking God together. And to me, that looks like a church. doesn't need a building or a constitution or a charity legislation. That, that, you know, they're baptizing and, and, and around the Word and in the presence of God and discipling. And I, I see that. That's what I see as I drive around. I see those names and signs. And I'm, I'm leaving the kids somewhere. And I look at a sign and I see Bestbrook. And I'm like, come on, I can see that. I can see that. What do you see? God is doing a new thing. What do you see? I look across the border into the south of Ireland and I see things. Do you know that the Republic of Ireland is the least reached English-speaking people group in the world for the gospel? Can you believe that? The least reached English-speaking people group in the world is about 20 minutes drive away or 15 if Mike's drive. (laughs) that's a statistic and a half isn't it talk about fields white on the harvest and opportunities do you see it do you see it what do you see and what stops vision so vision is the first of my three three things that i'm pulling out of these verses what stops vision well obviously blindness Stops vision. Pretty easy. In Psalm 115, if you have your Bible open, go, to, go left from Isaiah to Psalm 115. And you'll see what causes blindness. And we'll look at it a wee bit more later on as, as we get further through the message. But Psalm 115. Says in verse 4, talking about idols. It says their idols are silver and gold made by the hands of men. Now listen to these idols or listen to, to the description of them. They have mouths but they cannot speak. They have eyes but they cannot see. They have ears but they cannot hear. Noses but they cannot smell. They have hands but they cannot feel. Feet but they cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. In other words, idolatry is utterly useless. Idols can do nothing. But look at verse 8, because this is the sort of shocking punchline of all of that. Those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. Idolatry, whatever you worship, you will become like. Whatever you worship, you will become like. You worship King Jesus and you will find your character will be changed to become more like him. You worship idols, you will find that your heart will become stone cold and dead like an idol's heart. You'll find that your eyes will become blind like an idol's eyes. Blindness stops vision. And a people who are involved in idolatry, and we'll see later how subtle idolatry can be. A people who are involved in idolatry become blind and they cannot see what God is doing. They can't perceive it. Religion blinds people. Jesus goes after the Pharisees in Matthew 23 and he absolutely rails on them. And over and over again, the word that I think he uses most frequently in the chapter to describe them is the word blind. He says blind men, blind Pharisee, blind guides, blind fools, blind, 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 blind. These are the religious guys but they cannot see what God is doing through Jesus. 
blind guides leading the blind. So God needs people of vision. Do you see? What do you see? And I, I really throw that at you to go away and chew on that. What do you see? And then tell somebody. Tell some of the elders. Tell somebody else in the church. Tell some of the trustees. Tell someone, this is what I see in my workplace canteen, in my family home, in my town, in my village, in my housing development. This is what I see. What do you see? Does anybody live in a housing development with a bit of grass in it and you could stick a bouncy castle on the grass and just see who comes out to play? Can you see stuff like that? That's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about building a cathedral. You know, I'm just talking about simple things. What do you see in the area where you live and have influence? God needs a people of vision. I'm doing a new thing. It springs up. Do you not perceive it? The second thing that I want to mention, so the first one is vision, and the second one is flexibility. So we're still in Isaiah 43, where God says in verse 19, I'm doing a new thing, new thing. And in order to receive a new thing, we're going to learn that you have to be flexible. Now, can you see what's written on the balloon? Zach, can you see what's written on the balloon? No. Anybody see what's written on the balloon? No? What do I have to do with a balloon so you can see what's written on it? Blow it up. You ready now? You excited? Point is, some written on the balloon, but you can't see it until the balloon is stretched. And the balloon can't stretch until air is put into it. But the balloon has to be flexible. It has to be flexible. Jesus talks about new things in the gospel. So God is doing a new thing, and I'm saying you need to be flexible for the new thing to actually take place. You need to have the capability to expand and to stretch. Jesus in Mark chapter 2 talks about new wine. And he says, he's talking about the kingdom of God. He says, no one pours new wine into a new wine or, or into an old wineskin. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. And both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. Now, let me just explain what's going on there. A wineskin was made from an animal skin. And initially it was soft and supple and flexible. But over time it would dry up and it would become brittle and more likely to crack, split. Now, new wine is wine that has begun <laughs> fermenting, but the fermentation process is not finished yet. Now, it pains me more than any of you to talk about chemistry in July. But let me just tell you, in fermentation, something is produced as well as alcohol. Do you remember what it is? <laughs> oh, he's on. It's a gas. Safe gas. It's carbon dioxide. Yeah. In the fermentation process, carbon dioxide is also produced. And if you have any process that is forming a gas it will expand. You're starting off with a solid or a solid and a liquid and you're producing a gas, expansion will take place. Now I learned painfully that um, certain things will cause glass vessels to explode. 
I remember in front of a class full of kids about 10 years ago having a bit of fun one day and getting carried away and doing something in a little conical flask, a cone-shaped flask, and thinking this will be really funny because it'll all squirt out the top. But it didn't squirt out the top. It sort of solidified and formed a bung in the top of the flask. And then inside the flask, the reaction kept on taking place, producing gas until the whole thing blew up. Thankfully, it was in a fume cupboard and got away with it. But if you've got something that's made of glass that is inflexible and it is forced to expand, it will shatter. Now, we're going somewhere here. Old wineskins are brittle. When the new wine goes in and the fermentation process continues and the gas is produced, the skin will split The skin will be ruined and the wine will be lost. Jesus says, I cannot put new wine into old wineskins. What I'm doing has to go into a vessel that is flexible. Get this. The kingdom of God must go into flexible vessels. It will stretch and it will expand. And if the vessel is not flexible, the vessel will break. The kingdom of God cannot be contained in the old vessel of religion. And again, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees when he says this. If we want expansion and if we want new things, God declares he wants to do a new thing. If we want to see a new thing, we have got to be flexible, adaptable, ready for change, able to expand and contain what God is doing. The picture on the side of the balloon, what what was written on the balloon, what is written on your life may only become visible as God breathes into you, stretches you, expands you, maybe makes you feel a bit uncomfortable. But as he does that, what he's written on your life becomes visible to others. But there's got to be flexibility in the vessel. When was the last time you changed your mind about something? When was the last time you thought you knew something and then you realized, I don't know that. I need, to, I need to recalibrate my thinking on that. I need to change my attitude towards that thing or that type of people or that situation or that experience that someone else has gone through that I think I understand, but I really don't understand. When was the last time that you allowed the Holy Spirit to actually stretch you and change you? Because God needs flexible vessels to do his new thing. And the disciples themselves, the question is not, will they make room for Jesus to be stuck on to their lives that are already full? Or will they become entirely new vessels to contain what Jesus is doing through the gospel? That's the challenge. Imagine if those 12 men had not been flexible. Imagine if they'd said to Jesus, listen, Nice ideas, but this, we've already done, we've done it all this way for our whole lives and we're not, we're not fit to change to accommodate what you're doing. Think about it. Think about what they had to go through to leave behind everything that they'd heard their whole lives and become flexible vessels for the kingdom of God. Huge, miraculous. Do you understand why Jesus needed to be stuck to them for three years to actually flip and sort them out? Do you understand why so many times they got it wrong? Do you think you'd do any better? <laughs> I wouldn't do any better. There's a process. 
Imagine if Paul had not been flexible. Paul was a leading Pharisee, a religious man. Imagine if he had not been flexible. Imagine if he had not gone away for those 14 years that he talks about in Galatians to become a flexible vessel. To have all his religious thinking taken away and be made supple in the hands of God so that he could receive the kingdom. Imagine if Paul hadn't been flexible in Acts 16 where Paul wants to go to Asia and he wants to go to Bithynia to preach the gospel. But the Holy Spirit stops him and says, no, you're going to Macedonia. Imagine if he hadn't been flexible. Because when he went to Macedonia, he ended up in a city called Philippi. And if he hadn't been flexible, if he had just done his own thing instead of doing what God wanted him to do, we would have no story of Lydia. We would have no story of the praise night in the prison where the chains fell off and the Philippian jailer and his family got born again. And you'd have no letter to the Philippians in your Bible. Imagine if he hadn't been flexible. Imagine if Peter hadn't been flexible in Acts chapter 10 when God showed him a vision of a sheet coming down with all sorts of meat in it, clean and unclean. And Peter said, no, I'm not eating that. I've never ate that and I won't eat that. And God has to show him the vision three times before Peter gets it. If Peter had refused to be flexible, if Peter had just said, listen, I do not eat unclean food and I will not bring your gospel to unclean people, the gospel would never have gone to the Gentiles. But Peter was flexible. Took three shots for him to get it, but he got it eventually and the gospel went to the Gentiles via Cornelius. Imagine if Peter hadn't been flexible. Imagine if Philip hadn't been flexible. In Acts chapter 8, he's seeing revival in Samaria. Loads of people are getting born again. The Holy Spirit has been poured out and there are signs and wonders and miracles. And then God pulls him away to go to one guy. And like all these people are getting saved in Samaria and, and God says to Philip, you're going to this one guy, this one random Ethiopian. But that random Ethiopian happened to work for the queen and he got born again. And he got baptized. He heard the good news about Jesus and the gospel went to Africa. But imagine if Philip hadn't been flexible. Imagine if Philip just said, no, there's stuff going on in Samaria and I'm staying put. God needs a flexible people. A flexible people to do the new thing that he wants to do. We resist change a lot. And again, in the science classroom, I teach a concept about equilibrium and the definition simply of equilibrium is that equilibrium opposes change. Equilibrium opposes change. A lot of us are at equilibrium and we don't like change. We like everything to be predictable the way we've always done it, the way we expect to do it. And when change comes, we can sometimes oppose it and buck against it. So inflexibility then will prevent God from doing his new thing. Huge problem in this country. Inflexible people. Religion and legalism. It is so hard. If you have been raised in religion, it is so hard to step out of it and lose that rigidity and that brittle nature and become flexible. So hard. It's an act of God. And you read Galatians or you read Hebrews and you think about that in the background of those letters, there is a people who are just always prone to slipping back into religious ways. And Paul and the writer of the Hebrews is warning them, don't go back, don't go back, don't go back. Don't put your confidence in those things. Those days are gone. Sometimes I think we pray for the Spirit to move. And if we could hear him, 
I sometimes think he would say, I can't move. You're too rigid to receive what I want to do. If I move with you in your current rigid, inflexible state, you will break. You can't handle what I want to do. So maybe we need to pray, Lord, make me more flexible so that I can see and receive a new thing. I was reading a book while I was away there by a guy called Steve Addison called something. Um, Pioneering Movements. Pioneering Movements. You know, there are literally tens of thousands of church plants springing up in Asia, in Africa, in South America. Little groups around the Word of God and bread and wine and baptizing and teaching people about Jesus and multiplying and multiplying and multiplying and multiplying. God's doing a new thing. He doesn't need buildings. He doesn't need, not that they're bad, okay? They're useful, they have their uses. But he doesn't need that to do what he wants to do. Let's become flexible. All right? Don't pray for the Spirit to move if you're not flexible enough to receive what he wants to do. And the last thing, I had that moment of hope when he says the last thing. Um, The last thing in Isaiah 43, just go back to it so you see it again. So we've had vision. And we've had flexibility to receive the new thing. And the last thing that God commands us to do is to be forgetful. (laughs) Quite easy for some of us. Um, Forget, verse 18 of Isaiah 43, forget the former things, do not dwell on the past. Now that's a really bizarre thing for God to say. Because two verses before that, all the language of what God is speaking through Isaiah is about the exodus. It's all language about the army drowning in the sea and about God making a way through the sea and a path through the mighty waters. And then he says, forget it. (laughs) What's going on? Well, I think what's going on, or I got help figuring out what's going on from a writer called John Oswald. And what God is saying to them is, and this actually ties up with something that David Legg said a few weeks ago at at a seminar, at a conference over at to bar over at the Emmanuel. The things that God had done in the past had become an idol to the people. And what God is, God is not saying, forget. He's saying, my character never changes. My desire to save people and deliver people never changes. My desire to bless human beings and fill them with my life never changes. But I don't always do it the same way. So don't be sitting around waiting for the sea to open because the sea might never open again. That's how he did it then. He delivered his people. He still delivers people, but he might not open the sea to do it. So I believe when God is saying to them, forget the former things, he's saying, listen, do not look to the past and expect me to do exactly the same thing. You can look to the past and expect me to be the same God with the same character and the same love and the same grace and the same power, but don't sit around waiting for me to do exactly the same thing. Do you get it? And he he drives that home even further straight afterwards because he says in verse 19, I'm making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. Now, I'd never noticed this before, and I didn't notice it. This guy helped me notice it when I read his book. In verse 
16, we read about the God who made a way through the sea. So we have dry land appearing in the sea. In verse 19, we have a God who makes a river appear in the desert. You've got water appearing in a dry place. Do you see that they're, they're just a complete polar opposite of each other? A dry pathway through the sea on the one hand and a, dry, or a, a wet river through the desert on the other hand. Complete opposites. But the God who does it is the same God. In the old one, it's the Exodus and he's talking about how he made a path through the sea to deliver people from bondage to Egypt. In the new way, he's looking forward eventually to the Holy Spirit, the river coming in the dry place and bringing life and deliverance to people after Jesus has been crucified and resurrected. But it's the same God, the same character, still delivering people, but doing it in different ways. So don't expect someone to have the same conversion experience you had. Right? One person might be able to point to a day and a date and an hour and a moment and say, that's when I got born again. And somebody else might just say, you know what, over a period of about five years, God just spoke to me and brought me closer and closer to himself. I can't put my finger on exactly when it happened, but I know I'm his. Let's not force everyone into the same thing. That's the mistake that Peter made at the transfiguration, whenever he saw Jesus transfigured and he saw Moses and he saw Elijah and he said, let's build three tabernacles. Because that's what he did in the past. That's what he saw in the past. A tabernacle created for God. And Peter says, well, let's create three tabernacles. And God's like, no, 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 no. Don't do that anymore. This is Jesus. This is my son. Listen to him. Don't build tabernacles anymore. I don't do that. He's the tabernacle. Don't expect God to do what he's done in the past. We want to see a revival, but we're not going to see a repeat of the 1859 revival. And we're not going to see a repeat of the Welch revival. We're not going to see a repeat of the Great Awakening in the United States in the 1700s. We don't need to see the same thing happening, but we need to see the same God moving and delivering people and setting them free. Don't make an idol out of what he did in the past. I was chatting to somebody yesterday at a wedding, a reasonably elderly gentleman that I've known for, for a long time, and he was, he was telling me that he couldn't understand his Bible. He said, I just, I, just don't, I just don't get it. And he's been a Christian a long time. He said, I just really, really struggle. Open it up, and I, re- and I just don't get it. And I chatted to him for a wee while, and then it, 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 I figured out he's using the King James Bible. And I said to him, listen, I said, I am thankful for the King James Bible. I am thankful for the men who translated it. I am thankful for those who gave their lives to get the word of God published and printed and distributed. I'm thankful for it. But it is written in English that is 400 years old and most people in 2019 can't really understand it. I said, you know, get yourself something that's maybe been, been brought out in the last 30 or 40 years, NIV or ESV or something. That, um, so, so I was very careful. I'm not dissing it. I'm not saying the stuff from the past is rubbish and garbage and wrong. It's not. But we don't always have to use the same methods. I don't have to read the same version of the Bible that Martin Luther read in order to know Jesus. Okay. And God is not saying that the things in the past are not important, but what he's saying is, I'm doing a new thing. I'm still the same God. I'm still delivering people, but I will do it in new ways. And just as I said, for for vision, and I really am nearly done, for vision, the problem is blindness caused by idolatry. 
We need to be a flexible people. The problem is legalism that makes us inflexible and unable to move with what God is doing. And God's saying here we need to have a healthy level of forgetfulness regarding the past. So what we need to be careful is, is reminders. What do you need to forget? Every one of us has stuff in the past that disqualifies us from serving God. Every one of us. But Jesus died and rose again from the dead and forgave us and filled us with the Holy Spirit and made us new creatures. The old is gone and the new has come. So what is it that you need to forget? And sometimes there are things that are impossible to forget. And what what God really means is it's it's not so much that we can cause ourselves to forget something. More, More accurately, it would be do not remember. Don't dwell on the former things. Do not go back and play over and over again in your mind the things that God has forgiven. Don't do that because that makes light of the cross. What do you need to forget? Because see, whenever you're reminded of those things, the balloon deflates. Deflates. And another thing, be careful who you spend time with. Do not spend time with people who constantly remind you of your past failures. Don't do it. Because you come along and you're all filled with a new thing that God's doing and you're all expanded and, and you're, you're ready to go and they come along with a pin. You know, do you remember this that you did? And they, just, they just make you small again. Be careful. Give people a chance to change as well. Don't remind them of their past. I had a kid come up to me one day at a wedding uh, and I had taught him years ago. And he said to me, he says, I feel a bit awkward around you because I was a real goat in school. <laughs> and he was. <laughs> and uh, it, was, it, was really quite, it was a lovely conversation actually. He was, you know, at this stage he was about 25. And I, I said to him, I said to him but you're, you're 25 now. Back then you were 15. I don't see you and assume that you are the same now as you were back then. I, I give you grace and I give you a chance to actually change and mature and be different. You know, We need to do that with people. We need to give them grace. We need to, if you bump into someone that you haven't seen in six months or a year or two years, don't just automatically assume that they are the same difficult person that they were two years ago. They might have changed. They might have changed. Give them grace. So God's character never changes. The message never changes, but the way in which he acts and the methods that he uses must change. And we need to be a people who have vision for the new thing he's doing, who have flexibility to receive it and adapt and to change, and who choose to forget the past so that we can move on into the future. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for... Speaking this to us, Lord, I thank you that you raised these verses to our attention, Father, through your servant. I thank you for the, just the joyous message that they contain. And Lord, I ask for myself and for everyone here, Lord, that we would be flexible in your hands, that we would not resist Like those people that Stephen spoke to in Acts 7 and he said, you're stiff-necked, you always resist the Holy Spirit, that we would not resist, that we would bend and move with the wind, with your wind, the wind of your Spirit, Lord. So Lord, I pray you'd fill this church with new things. Fill our hearts with new vision. 
as we're just out going about our business, driving around, walking around, Lord, that we would see new things, that we would see what you see, that we'd have faith for it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.